Welcome to our podcast here at Trinity West Church. We believe that you will be enriched by today's message. Let's open our hearts to receive God's Word. Well, would you turn to the book of Genesis? Turn to the book of Genesis, chapter number 3. I'm going to be preaching a series today that I think maybe just one of the most important series I have done. And that is a series called More Than Words. We're going to do that today, More Than Words. And we're going to go over the next few weeks and talk about uh, the Word of God, perhaps maybe in a way that you've never heard before or you maybe haven't heard in a while. Uh, but we're going to talk about the importance of God's Word. And listen... Specifically for what's going on in our country today, this is a a vital series. Specifically for what is going on in our country at this very moment. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Listen to that again. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, that the man of God, that the man of God may be complete. May be complete. There's there's something about this book right here. We call it the Bible. Where did we get e- even that phrase from? Well, the, the Greek word for book is actually biblios, and, and they got that because there was a Phoenician city port uh, back in, in those days where Lebanon is today, and it, it's, uh, today the city is not named uh, Biblios anymore. It's named Gabal, but back then the city was actually named Biblios. The Greeks called it Biblios. It was the city that first started to use papyrus, uh, which we know now as paper, to write on. And so the city was called Biblios, and so uh, that's where we get the word Bible, that's where they get the word book from. Uh, the Greek word for the word book is, is Biblios. And, but we treat this as a different kind of Biblios. So we don't just call this Bible, but Most people call it the Holy Bible. In other words, this book is separate. It is different from any other book. Uh, There was a guy uh, by the name of uh, Peter Henry, or Patrick Henry, he said this, that the Bible is more valuable than all other books that have been printed combined. That one Bible is more valuable than any other book, all other books that have ever been printed combined. It is holy. It is sacred. And there's something about this book right here. And, and even though we have the, the rise of technology, and listen, I love technology, and I, I have a phone, and I'm, I can be accused of being glued to it, and I have an iPad and a and, uh, laptop and all that stuff, I, I still kind of like the feeling of, of holding a, a book in my hand. I always encourage people to bring their books. I know we put scriptures on screen. But there's just something about, you know, holding on to it. Now, I do a lot of my study through an iPad, but still, I just like to hold a Bible. I still like to grab this and and pick it up and and hold it. I encourage you, listen, if you don't have a Bible that you can understand, go out and and go shopping. 
I mean, go, ladies, listen, I give you permission. Go shopping. Go spend your husband's money. Guys, go get one. Go get a, a, a Bible that you can understand. Go get a, a, a new book, a, a new holy book. Because over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what separates this book from any other book. What makes this absolutely so different? Listen, have you ever thought about this? Why is it that we believe that our religion is superior, not just superior, but exclusive? Why, why is it that we believe that Christianity is the only way? You know, we're not the only religion that believes in exclusivity. We're not the only religion that says we're the only way. The Buddhists think they're the only way. The Muslims think they're the only way. And Christians, we believe that we're the only way. But, but have you ever thought, well, why are, why are we so different? Why, why is ours the only way? Aren't there, aren't there many paths or several paths? Or, I'm sure the, the Muslims are just as devout. Some of them may, may be way more devout than we are. They believe theirs is the only way. So how do we know who's right? How do we know that, that we're right and they're wrong? How do we know that Christianity is truly the only way. Here's how we know. Acts chapter 4, verse number 12. There is salvation in no other. For there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. You say, yes, but pastor, that's in the Bible. Yes, that is in this book. And the reason why we know that Christianity is the only way is because the Bible says that it's the only way. Jesus himself said, I am the way. There is no other way. In Acts chapter 4, there is no other name. You say, well, well, what makes the Bible right? Well, here is why we believe the Bible is absolute truth. I'm going to give you three reasons. Number one, the first reason is because of its consistency. The first reason is consistency. Think about this. The Bible was written over a period of, of, of just over 1,500 years. 1,500 years this book it took to come together. It has 66 books. It was handwritten by 40 men, yet there is one author. His name is God, and he wrote it through, through 40 different men, used their hands, huh? But, but it only contains one theme, and that theme is God's love for humanity. You see, you see 66 books with stories that intertwine and they weave together with prophecies, 350 prophecies in the Old Testament. Over half of them came true through the life of Jesus Christ. How is that possible? How is it possible that, that 40 different people could handwrite through one inspired author a book that is so cohesive, so consistent, so together over a period of 1,500 years that contains one theme that's interwoven, that's all connected. How is that possible? It has to be supernatural. And its consistency speaks to the supernatural effect of this book. The second thing is, is, is not just it, it, it being supernatural, it's accuracy. It's accuracy. The Bible is the most accurate book 
historically that has ever been written. The Bible is the most accurate book geographically that has ever been written. Archaeologists have tried to disprove the Bible. Archaeologists have tried to to go about saying that this location is not real, this didn't happen. Yet when they dig things up, when they find things, every time they do it, all they do is find out that, that actually it's exactly as it's written right here in this book. That when they find these cities, when they, when they unearth all these findings, they're finding out that it's exactly as God wrote it in this book. Think about this. God is so specific in this book. He is so detailed in this book that he left himself wide open to be falsified. There's absolutely no way that he could write a book this detailed, this, this intrinsic in all of its, its, its weavings, in all of its, its writings, in the fact that it lists name after name name after name after name, location after location. He left himself wide open to be proven false, yet no one has ever proven it false. Over thousands of years, they've tried to prove this book false, yet nobody can. Why? Because it's a supernatural book. Hallelujah. This is why we know that, that Christianity is the only way, because of this book right here. I used to, when I was a kid, I used to think to myself, man, I'd read the Bible and I'd read those parts where it says so-and-so begat so-and-so. Have you got to those parts? How many of you just skip right over them? I mean, most of us just skip right, I'll be honest, I skip right over them. You get to Matthew and and it starts again. More begats, so-and-so begats. And I thought to myself, why in the world would God put all this? This is boring, you know what I'm saying? Boring. But the, the reason why is because God was establishing a historical record of lineage, people, to be proven over a period of time that it's exactly as he says it is. That, that God was setting up historical records. That when people tried to go about trying to disprove the Bible, all they found out that the Bible is absolutely accurate, absolutely true. That everybody that was born when, they, when the Bible says they were born is absolutely true. That there was a man named Jesus who really walked on this earth, who really was born, who really died on a cross, who really went into a grave, and today that grave is really empty. You see what I'm saying? Why? Because this book says so. And, and so it is, it is incredibly, incredibly accurate. And then the third thing is this. It's relevancy. This book is the most relevant, up-to-date book. Even though it was written long ago, even though it took 1,500 years to write, even though the last writer died years and years ago, still to this day, there's nothing that you'll ever experience in life. There's no situation that you're not going through right now. There's nothing that will attack your family. There's no situation against your finances or your physical body that this book does not speak to. This book changes lives. This book has the power to turn situations around. This book today, in 2015, can still speak into every event that you've ever experienced in your life and ever will experience in your life. This book has power to change people's lives. Hallelujah. And so that's why there's no other book that can change lives like this book. There's no self-help book. There's no philosophical book. There's, there's There's nothing that's ever been written that has the power that this book has. This book has the power to transform. 
It is a living book. It is a living book. And so today, it is still, this day, a moral compass for our lives. If you're in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to start reading in verse number 1. This is what is commonly referred to as the fall of man, the temptation of man. In verse number 1, it says this, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the tree, uh, I should say, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Listen to this. For you will be like God, knowing good and evil. One translation says this, knowing the difference between good and evil. And this is the battle that we all face. Who has the right to determine what is good and what is evil? This is what's happening in our world today. Who has the right? This is what happened in the book of Genesis. It was the very first temptation. The right to determine what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, what is moral and what is immoral. Who has that right? God says, I and I alone have the right. Satan says that that right belongs to everyone. And society is going right along with the enemy. See, society today determines. They say, no, we have the right to determine what is, what is right and what is wrong. We can say that, that the things that, that God calls immoral, we can say, no, no, they're, they're moral. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. After all, who gets to determine that? Who gets to determine what's right and what's wrong? Do I have the capacity to determine what's right and what's wrong? Do I want to carry that on my shoulders? Do I want to live my life just saying, well, listen, I'm just going to live my way. I get to determine what's right and what's wrong? Who has the right to do that? Does the government government have the right to determine what's right and what's wrong? Based on what? What? What are they basing that on? What's the foundation? What do they go back to? Somebody's somebody's morality? Well, whose morality do they get to pick from? Five judges? Do you see what I'm saying? Who gets to determine what's right and what's wrong? Some man somewhere? Some woman somewhere? Who gets that right? It's still the same battle. The battle that took place in Genesis is still the battle that is taking place today. I'm here to tell you that this book right here, listen to me, this book is the only moral foundation, and this book is the only book that gets to determine what is right and what is wrong. Nothing else does. Let me give you this example. Most of you are aware of what happened this week. The Supreme Court came out with a uh, a ruling that says that gay marriage is, is really what you could say the law of the land. 
Now, let's just get away from the constitutionality of what they did. So let's just get away from that, and let's go straight to the morality of what took place. What they said is that, that every person has the right to determine what they think is right concerning marriage. So that if a man wants to marry another man, then he has the right to do so. If a woman wants to marry another woman, then they have the right to do so. Now, what the world cannot understand is why that offends Christians. Listen to me. The world doesn't get why that offends Christians. And here's why. Because they say, why, if two people are in love, why don't they have the right to marry each other? After all, if they're in love. And you know, the society is screaming that, love. It's all about love. It is just about love. Love wins, right? And so that's their argument, that, that as long as there, there's love, well, who gets to determine that? If, 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 if I love two women, do I get the right to marry those two women if they both love me? Why can't I determine that, that I get to have two wives besides Cynthia and her gun, and why that's the reason why I would not be allowed to marry another woman. Besides that, who gets to determine that? I mean, if love is the only determination, if, 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 if we're saying it's all about love, then, then why don't I have the right to just do what I want when it, when it comes to love? You see what I'm saying? Because they're, they're going back to there's no moral compass. There's no foundation for the decisions that they're making. Here's why. Listen to me. Why is racism so offensive? Why is racism immoral? Here's why racism is so offensive and so immoral. Because we believe that our ethnicity is a gift from God and it is sacred. And you do not have the right to discriminate against me because of of the gift that God has given me. You do not have the right to take the gift that God has given me and redefine it as something less than a gift. Do you hear me? That's why racism is offensive. We embrace our ethnicity. Now, let me just say this. Marriage and sexuality is a gift that was given to us by God. God gave us the gift of marriage. He gave us the gift of marriage, and he gave us the boundaries that came along with it. He said, here is the gift that I'm giving you. This is a gift that is given to one man, and it is given to one woman. And it's a gift. Listen what? And we consider marriage sacred. Marriage is sacred. Sexuality is sacred. You want to define love? See, here's how you define love. In, in the English language, love is defined by one word. Love. But in the Greek language, love is defined by four words. The first one is agape, which means God kind of love. The second one is phileo, which means a a friendship type of love or brotherly type of love. The third one is storge, which is a parental type of love. And then the fourth one is eros, which is a romantic type of love. In marriage, you find all four types of love, but only in the marriage between a man and a man in a woman. They're not just trying to redefine marriage. They're trying to redefine love. 
And we consider marriage and love very sacred. And so you cannot redefine it for us. You cannot tell us that it's something that that is contrary to this book. If this book says that marriage is one way and that it is sacred, then for somebody to say that it's something else is, is contrary to what we believe. That's why we don't accept it. It's not because we're haters. It's not because we just don't want people to be happy. That has nothing to do with it. It's because we believe this book. It has everything to do with this book. It's not about denying rights. It's about this book right here. If this book says it's between a man and a woman and it's sacred, then it's between a man and a woman and it's sacred. And man, hey, we'll we'll still love people and reach out to people and minister to people, not not in any way, uh, you know, be harmful or harassing or, or hateful towards people, but we'll never deviate from this book. It's the truth of God's word. And that's why. Because God gets the right to determine what is right and wrong. What is moral and what is immoral. I don't get to choose. Listen, if I got to choose, everybody who rooted against the Florida Gators would be be punishable by death. Okay? If you rooted against the Florida, well, not death, but jail. You'd at least go to jail for rooting against my, I don't get to determine right and wrong. God does. Right? I don't have the capacity. I don't want, listen, I don't want that weight on my shoulders. Only God gets to do that. So here's what's going to happen over, over the course of this series. We're going to tell you a few things about really what, what the Word of God is. And the first one is so important, so valuable today. I'm here to tell you that this, number one, the Word of God, the Bible, is the breath of God. It's the breath of God. Now, I read to you 2 Timothy 3.16, but I want to read it one more time. It really, because it's so powerful for you to know in the Amplified Bible, and, and just that very first phrase, because it's, it's kind of a long verse, but in the Amplified Bible, it says this, All Scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. You just need to know that right there. See, the King James says the inspiration of God, but if you really translate it, it actually says this, all scripture is the breath of God. That God breathed when he spoke. That when we speak, we breathe. We exhale. And all of this book is the breath of God. Then you say, well, why is that so important? Because the breath of God is the life of God. In Genesis chapter 2, in verse number 7, it says this, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath or spirit of life, and man became a living being. It wasn't until, listen, God formed man, but it wasn't until God breathed into man that man became a living being. Breath equals life. In Ezekiel, I should say, chapter 37, 
There's a scripture that talks about how, how there's this, this vision that Ezekiel had of bodies coming together, bones coming together, and then the Bible says, and then there was sinew on top of it. In other words, these bodies in this vision, these bodies begin to form, but it says this in Ezekiel chapter 37. It says, but these bodies did not become living, breathing things until the breath was blown into them. The Bible says, and then God breathed on them and they became living. See, some of you might be here today and you say, Pastor, I feel like I'm holding on to my faith by a thread. I feel like I'm about to give in. I'm about to give up. I feel like my my world has been rocked. I've gone through a, a storm. I've gone through some trials. I just feel like there's a very little life left in me. Listen, if you want life breathed back into your life, listen, it's more important than hands being laid on you, and I believe in that. It's more important than you coming to church and, whoo, you know that's the 11th commandment for me. But listen, more important than that is you opening up this book right here and getting in this book right here and letting God just breathe new life into you once again. And that's what he'll do. He will just begin to breathe new life into you. So that you could say this, when we breathe, right, we breathe out, we have to eventually inhale. It just kind of works that way. You know, have you figured it out? When you exhale, you're going to have to at some point inhale, you know. When I was a kid, my brother, we would wrestle, and he was four years older than me, so he always won. Well, he'd stick a pillow over my face, and he would just sit there and just hold the pillow over my face, and I would just start screaming, I can't breathe! I can't breathe! And here's what he'd say, if you're talking, you can breathe. And, you know, I'm like eight. I can't figure out. I should have just played mute, you know, he thought, well, maybe he is dying, you know, no, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, no, if you're talking, you can breathe, so that, so that there's, there's this exhaling and inhaling that takes place, well, if God is breathing out, we should be breathing in, amen, and so it's this, it's this kind of like you would say this, this mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, that takes place in the mornings when you get up and you open this book. There's something supernatural about this book. And when you get up and you open this book up, and you say, Lord, okay, now this morning I'd like you to speak to my life. I would like you to breathe new life into me. Then when you open this book up, man, God breathes into you and new life comes. New energy come, new strength come, new power come, new confidence come, new faith comes. Why? Because you are literally inhaling the breath of God into your body. Amen? There's something about it. The Word of God is the breath of life. Now, it was years ago that President Clinton very famously said that he smoked pot, but he never what? Never inhaled. I said, I didn't inhale. I just took it into my... I, I don't even know what that means. I've never been a smoker. I, I don't even know what that means. You know, uh, that he just kind of put it to his lips and he, he puffed it. I, I don't even get it, right? And I'm not going to try it, so I don't worry about it. But I, I, I guess he... And what he's literally trying to convince the American public of 
And he did a very good job for several years of his life. What he's trying to convince us of, that he never let the effects of that particular drug into his body. Why? Because he never inhaled. And because I didn't inhale, it never affected me. Listen, I'd have had much more, you know, respect for him if he just said, oh, are you kidding me? I grabbed that joint, <laughs> and I, I went to town on that thing, man. I made a mess of that joint. I just tore that joint up. I'd have had more respect for him if he would have said that, you know. And then instead, it's, still a, it's like a laughing stock years later. But you know, there's Christians who take the word of God, and they'll just kind of skim it over. And instead of really taking the time to spend in God's word, they just glance at something, huh? They just get out a little, you know, little one little scripture thing, and they just kind of look it over, or a verse of the day, they just kind of see it on their homepage. And it's just the same way. What happens is we just glance at it, we don't meditate on it, we don't focus on it, we don't apply it to our life, we don't think to ourselves, now how, how does this portion of scripture apply to me? What does this mean? We, we never do that. And by doing that, it's like we're not inhaling. We never let the effects and the power Listen to me. And the power that is on these pages with these words, we never let it change our lives because we don't inhale. And I'm here to tell you today, listen, if I do nothing more with this series, this is my prayer, than to hopefully get you to fall in love with this book afresh and anew today. I've studied this book all my life. It's it's been the, the one thing that I've read more than anything else. And, and, and I, I enjoy this book. I love to read the stories. And, and we're going to talk about more that this book does for us. But I'm here to tell you today, if you're hanging on, man, if you're, you're, pla- you're in a place, you say, Pastor, I'm not in a great place spiritually. Here, here to, the remedy is not in you attending some conference or, or you just going to church more or, or you coming and, and spending time at altar. Those are all great things. Those are all necessary things. And, and the, I, listen, do every one of them that you could do. But nothing, nothing will replace you opening these pages. Nothing will replace you saying, hey, today is, is June 28th, so I'm going to grab Proverbs 28, and I'm going to read it, and I'm going to say, God, speak to me today. Breathe new life into my family. Breathe new life into my finances. Breathe new life into my business. Lord, would you breathe new life into my physical body? Amen. He has the power to do that. This book is like no other. It is absolute truth. It gets the ability. This is the foundation. It has the right, God through this book, to determine what's right and wrong, what's moral and immoral, and it has the ability to give you strength when nothing else can. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment? There is power in this book. It's literally more than words. Uh, I entitled that because I want you to get it. It's more than just words. Listen, if I ever get to a place as a preacher, will I just rely on stories? If I ever get to a place as a preacher, will I just try to use cute little sayings or little poems 
And I never open this book on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whenever I go to teach it. Shame on me. That's when I should stop preaching. That's when I'm done. Because God doesn't confirm my opinion. huh? He doesn't come down and watch over my cute little poem. and He doesn't change lives through quotes and one-liners. It's only by speaking this word and the power that comes in speaking this word do lives get transformed, including my own. It's the power of God. It's absolute truth. It's infallible. It's incapable of error. It has been consistent through all these years with the theme that God loves you. It is incredibly accurate, never proven false, never, never misleading. Through history, through time, it's passed every test, every archaeological test, every geographical test, every historical test. It has passed it all. And today, thousands of years after it was written, it's still just as relevant as it was when it was first put down on some kind of paper. It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. But for you, it is breath into your life. And without it, we can't live. Father, in the name of Jesus, for every head bowed here today, for every eye closed, Lord, I pray. For those here today maybe have let the busyness of life keep them from this book. Maybe for those who have let sin keep them from this book. Lord, for those of us who have let ambition, goals, chasing after dreams and wants and needs and desires keep us from this book. Lord, forgive us today. May we open this book afresh and anew and allow you to speak into our life. And when you speak into our life, it's like you're breathing into our life. And that breath comes, and that strength comes, and that ability comes, and that perseverance comes, and that confidence comes, and that faith comes to overcome anything the devil throws over. Lord, I don't know what's going to happen this week. I don't know what Tuesday's going to bring. I don't know what Thursday's going to bring. I don't know what's going to happen Friday afternoon. But I know this. Lord, when I open this book, I'll have the strength to handle. I'll be prepared. I'll be ready. And Lord, I thank you today. This is my compass. This determines what's right and wrong in my life. So, Father, I thank you today that you're changing lives.